From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We're covering the big ballot measures this election. Today, we debate a paid family and medical leave program, which Prop 118 would create, giving many workers access to 12 weeks for the birth of a child, adoption, illness, and more. Most often, employers and employees would split the premiums. Critics say mid-pandemic is the wrong time to vote this in. Supporters see the same scenario and say it's needed more than ever. Then, Purplish, CPR's politics podcast on how campaigns reach undecided voters. Like so many things this year, the coronavirus has really upended the political ground game. And a life-changing injury once kept secret, now out in the open. Why does my injury scare you? Because you're different. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A paid family and medical leave plan is on Coloradans' ballots this year. If voters approve, workers would be eligible for at least 12 weeks paid time off for the birth of a child or to care for a sick relative, among other life events. Premiums would pay for this to be split between employers and employees. Critics say this isn't the time, especially with an economy ravaged by the pandemic. So we're going to debate it in the first part of the program. Democratic State Senator Faith Winter had hoped paid family leave would pass the legislature this year, and she sponsored the bill to do so, which didn't come to fruition. And now she backs Prop 118. Senator Winter, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me here, and please feel free to call me Faith. Faith. All right. And from the No campaign, Dave DeVia. He's CEO of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association. Dave, it's nice to see you. Good morning. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. So cordial. Maybe that sets the tone for the debate. Uh, Senator Winter, let's first establish who gets paid family leave in the state now and why you think that ought to expand. Absolutely. Right now, only one out of five Coloradans have paid family leave. And that comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, which means what's happening right now is we have one out of four moms going back to work two weeks after giving birth. So imagine the last woman you know that gave birth, a sister, your mom, a friend, and what type of state she was in two weeks going back to work. We have cancer patients that are skipping their second round of chemotherapy because they can't lose their job. At the time they should be the strongest, they're not going to chemotherapy because they can't lose their paycheck and they can't lose their apartment. There are some protections for them under the federal FMLA program, which is unpaid time off. So I think you're speaking of women who simply can't afford that. Is that what I hear you saying? You can't afford it. And also FMLA is only for people that work for businesses 50 and over. A full half of our employees in Colorado work for smaller businesses, which means half of Coloradans don't even have the unpaid benefit and have to make the decision to keep their paycheck or take care of their health. What are some other circumstances, life circumstances, that would be covered under this proposal on the ballot? So it has to be medically certified. Um, It's not that you just get 12 weeks. So, for example, my dad needed hip replacement, um, and his doctor said you need four weeks. You would get four weeks to recover, not 12. Um, So hip replacements, heart attacks cancer. And in fact, in other states that have this, 
the majority of people use it for their own self-care and healing. And this would also apply, though, if you're taking care of a family member going through any of those types of events, correct? Absolutely. Okay. It also covers adoption. Uh, It covers people who are victims, I I think, of domestic and sexual abuse as well. Yes. uh, We have safe leave in this, and that's so incredibly important. If you have to move, if you are physically recovering from a domestic violence situation, this would be available to you because we shouldn't be asking folks in domestic violence situations to be worried about their paycheck. Who would be exempt from this? Because there are some carve-outs here. Um, So... All employees would benefit. Businesses 10 and under, the employer would not need the premium. Unfortunately, uh, local governments are not required to participate because of other laws in our Constitution. And we made sure that this wasn't constitutional, so we could do uh, any follow-up legislatively. However, we've talked to a lot of local governments, and they want to compete for the best and brightest employees as well. And this is far more affordable to provide paid leave than anything they're doing right now. So local governments could opt in, but they're not uh, obligated to participate. And if I work for a company that has nine or fewer employees... I, as an employee, can contribute, but the employer doesn't have to, correct? That's correct. So the employee contributes, the employer does not. All right. Uh, We're talking right now about Proposition 118. That is the paid family and medical leave proposal on the ballot. We've done a little setting up of how it might work, and I'd like to bring in the voice of Dave DeVia. He's CEO of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association, and he thinks this is not the right time for this kind of proposal. Uh, Do you think, Dave, that employers do a good enough job offering paid leave as it is? Uh, Senator Winter certainly thinks it's lacking. What's your view? Thank you. Uh, Thank you for the time this morning. And thank you to Senator Winter for the leadership that she's exhibited on this. You know, I think that uh, in our, at least in my view, employers make good decisions when presented with health crisis for their employees. Uh, Any employer in this state has to be able to put forth a competitive package to attract the best and brightest, and certainly paying for time off to care for loved ones, those who are sick, uh, those recovering from surgeries or the uh, medical conditions that Faith uh, covered here just a few minutes ago, is certainly in their best interests. Uh, I I would take issue with uh, it's not one in five Coloradans. Uh, I would say that it's probably the other way around. I think that uh, employers by nature have to be able to provide for their employees. Give you an example of a lady who worked for me for many years. Her husband had cancer. She needed some time off. And she came to me with, uh, you know, an ask of, can we do this? How can we manage through this? And collectively, we came up with a plan that helped her, her family, her situation through their crisis, their time of crisis, Uh, and 118 wouldn't have allowed me to work with her for the 10 months that we worked together 
to put together a plan for her to be able to, you know, be able to provide for her husband and run him back and forth to treatment. So you think that this is one size fits all. It doesn't allow for the flexibility that you were able to craft, for example, with your employee. So Senator Winter talked about statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Where do your numbers come from if you say it's actually the inverse? So the Colorado Chamber of Commerce uh, has uh, polled their employer Uh, The uh, Mountain States Employers Council now called the Employers Council has polled their membership. Uh, And in fact, uh, we're seeing numbers in the 80 to 90 percent range of folks providing time off. Some sort of paid time off. Paid time off. Now, do they provide specifically paid family medical leave? I think that may be what uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics could be cited. Okay, so you think that there's a lot going on that's not getting counted in that statistic. Uh, it sounds to me, Dave, that you're saying the market will take care of this, that businesses will take care of this. But inherently, won't some people fall through the cracks? Maybe not everyone operates the way you do. Well, I think that that's always a possibility. Um, you know, the 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 problem we have here, you said it earlier, was this is a one-size-fits-all program. Uh, It's a $1.3 billion tax increase for employees and employers. Um, And it it really limits employer flexibility. Um, You know, it gives the uh, state, um, you know, kind of unprecedented control. Um, And I, I would say that the state hasn't always managed its obligations in the best and most fiscal prudent manner. Take a look at PARA, for example. Um, It's the Public Employees Retirement Program. All right, Senator Winter, Faith, I would like to have you respond to a couple of things, but let's maybe talk about how this is paid for. So most often, the premiums would be shared between employers and employees. In your Colorado Blue Book, there are the numbers for various salary ranks, but can you give us a sense of how much people will contribute and what they would potentially get for it? Absolutely. Um, so for the average median income in Colorado, which is about a worker making $21 an hour, they're going to pay $3.83 a week, both from the employee and the employer. So that's the amount from each party? Yes. Okay. What does that add up to over the course of a year? Can you do that? I guess I'm asking you to do math on the fly. <laughs> you are I'm asking furiously you. opening my blue book, um, which has some of the, the income rankings. It's, it's true. So... Um, if your weekly wages are $1,000, that it, the in, annual premium is $234. $234. Um, and to give you some perspective, um, so we talked about businesses, and, and there are a lot of businesses trying to do right by their employees. And it's incredibly expensive to provide paid family leave on your own. So, for example, Catherine, who is the owner of Merlin Instrument Company, she had a pregnant employee. She wanted to do right by her employees. She went to the private market. It was incredibly confusing. It was hard to get covered as a small business. It was very expensive to get covered. And she's supporting this because she says, I can't offer the same benefits. I literally can't afford the same benefits that Google and Amazon does. But this is so affordable and lets me compete. And this takes the burden off of me as a small business owner. So you think that this is an economy of scale, in other words? It's absolutely an economy of scale. By increasing the pool, this makes it affordable for 
every employer and every employee in the state. Now, let me say that another type of company that's exempt is one that already offers this kind of benefit, correct? Absolutely. Does it have to be as robust as the state's benefit or or not? It has to be as robust, but this is not a one-size-fits-all. Because if you are already doing this, as many companies claim to, which I think it's a less robust PTO plan, but if you are offering this, you can absolutely opt out. There are options to opt out. That's interesting. I mean, Dave, if if as you paint the picture, so many companies are taking care of employees in this way, they'd be exempt from Prop 118, wouldn't they? So they would be, provided that the new political appointee of the department approves said policy or set program by that employer. You think there's a lot of discretion for that person? It gives this person unprecedented discretion, not only to uh, approve and pick which plans they would uh, uh, give waiver to, uh-huh. uh, but uh, this person would have unprecedented power to raise taxes without a vote of the people. You're uh, shaking your head no there, Faith. Why do you take issue with that framing? Um, one, the Colorado Supreme Court has said this is a fee. Uh, there's also a cap on how high it could go. In addition, eight other states have passed similar programs that are well within the range that are on this ballot initiative. So to say that there's this one person that can drastically increase taxes is just not true. Dave, what do you see when you look at other states that have done this? Other states have utilization rates or the people who are using the benefit. Taking advantage of it, young. Correct. Uh, or just using the benefit that they're paying for. I uh, don't want to say taking advantage of, but 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 a petitioning for and taking, taking that benefit. Uh, in Colorado, if this were to pass, the employee can go directly to the state and petition to take that leave. Uh, Senator Winter put forward an economic study from a sociology department at CU that shows that this, this program on the low end would be utilized at 5%, on the high end at 7%. And th- these numbers are important because it's a question of whether it will remain solvent. Correct. And uh, we, we believe that it's going to be far excess of the 5% because this is going to be the richest benefit uh, paid out, $1,100 per week, up to your 90% um, eligible weekly salary. Uh, current employers who have paid leave programs pay 100% and most likely. Uh, I can speak for the one that we manage, but they pay your 100% in wages, not just a proportion of it. And then from 90%, it's going to drastically drop down into the 30s. You think then, just to unpack a little bit of what I hear you saying, you don't think that this will remain financially stable. Do I hear you that saying is correct. that? Okay. Uh, Faith, just briefly before we take a break, address that concern. Absolutely. We actually put together a bipartisan panel that included participants from Chambers of Commerce, and they had three expert studies, including an actuarial study, come back to that task force. All three expert studies said this is solvent within this range. All eight other states that do this have a solvent program. And in fact, in New Jersey, they passed a law because their program is so solvent, they didn't want other government entities raiding their fund. We're going to take a break and resume our discussion about a rather important measure on your ballot this year, Prop 118, which would create a paid family and medical leave program. One question, of course, is, is this the right time to mount a program of this sort in the midst of the economic ravages of COVID-19? We'll have you address that after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support comes from College Invest 
helping parents plan for a child's future with a 529 college savings account that can be used at colleges and trade schools nationwide. Learn more at collegeinvest.org. Support comes from Glenwood Springs, a Colorado mountain town with a wide range of outdoor recreation, geothermal hot springs, and fall colors. Learn more at visitglenwood.com. Do you know it's time to say goodbye to your car, but you want to make sure it goes somewhere it'll be appreciated? Donate it to CPR, and then, just like that, your car has a new purpose, helping fuel all that it takes to run Colorado Public Radio. Your car's been good to you. Now let it be good to CPR. Find out how easy it is to safely donate your car on the support page at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Think of our show, at least the first part of it, as something of a radio blue book. We are debating Prop 118 on your ballot this year, which would create a paid family and medical leave program. This was something the legislature had tried to do but was unable and is now going to voters to ask if this is something you want to create in this state, up to 12 weeks time off for all sorts of major life events. And my guests debating this, Dave DeVia, Executive Vice President and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association. He is against Prop 118. And for it is State Senator Faith Winter, Adams County Democrat. I do want to talk about the timing of this. We know it's a very uncertain time for business. Does this add to that uncertainty as you see it, Dave? Uh, thanks, Ryan. Yes, I, I would say it does. Uh, this, coupled with paid sick leave that will be come into effect in January, coupled with the raising of unemployment insurance at a time where businesses are trying to figure out how they're going to operate in the new normal. Take restaurants, for example. Uh, patios have been nice. Well, it's been nice outside, but what happens to them come uh, the first snowfall? Uh, and so we just think that a 204% increase in the effective corporate tax at this point in time is just not good business. Now, the payments don't start till 2023, and the program doesn't kick in with benefits until 2024. Doesn't that put this past the pandemic? I mean, hopefully, (laughs) we're all crossing our fingers. Uh, Maybe you know something I don't, but, uh, you know, the pandemic is here, and we don't know when that's going to lift. Businesses need certainty. Employees need certainty. Uh, And yeah, premiums do start in 2023. Some studies show that this thing is insolvent from day one. Senator, what do you think of the timing of this? Um, First, I'll say it's one study that shows this and numerous other studies that show insolvent. Um, And on the timing, it is until 2023. And we believe that certainty for businesses is really important right now. And if you have certainty that you can provide paid family leave for an average of $3.83 a week, that is so much more certainty than going to the private market like Catherine tried to. And her benefits when she was trying to provide it for her small company varied based on age. It varied based on gender. It could fluctuate. So this is affordable and certain. And right now during a pandemic, no employer wants to say, oh, I'm so sorry you have to quarantine right now, but you're going to lose your wages. And so I think this is showing how important this benefit is. And the way we're providing it is affordable and certain and something that will help small businesses 
be competitive with the larger businesses. Faith, you were one of the main sponsors of this year's bill to create paid family leave in the legislature. It failed, and there were disagreements over how to fund it, who should run it. Some of the sponsors removed their names. Senator Angela Williams of Denver at one point said, this bill in its current form does not deliver a benefit to the vast majority who tend to work in low-wage jobs that often lack stability. Uh, One, is this an end run around the legislature? And two, is it a better plan than the legislature tried to pass? This is a better plan than what the legislature tried to pass. Angela Williams' quote came after we were trying to negotiate um, to make this work in the private market. And we, we tried to do that. But actually, our task force showed that the best way to do this for the most affordable way through three independent studies said that the social insurance program is the best way to do that. That is to do it through the state. You're creating a bureaucracy here. You're creating a department. You're creating more governments. It will be interpreted in some people's eyes. We're also spreading risk, right? And by everyone participating, we're coming together on shared goals and shared values to make sure that it is affordable for everyone. And you think it covers more people more generously than this? your fellow lawmaker feared? Yes. Okay. Dave, I had given uh, Senator Winter the first word. I'm going to give you the last word. Just a few seconds. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, yes, Senator Winter's right. Uh, they did debate it in the state house. Pinnacle Assurance said, we're going to pro- pro- uh, kind of prorate this as if 10% of Coloradans will use it, which is twice what uh, Senator Winter is projecting. Um, you know, what I would tell you is this program... Uh, is filled with bureaucracy, 200 new uh, employees at the state level, uh, $1.3 billion. Those are facts you just can't argue. Thanks to both of you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks. You heard from Dave DeVia, who opposes Prop 118 to create paid family and medical leave. He is CEO of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association. And we heard from State Senator Faith Winter, an Adams County Democrat who supports 118. RTD ridership is down 60% due to the pandemic. But tens of thousands of people still rely on transit every day in Metro Denver. To protect those riders, RTD is proposing significant changes, as CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports. If not for most people wearing masks, you wouldn't know there's a pandemic if you stood on Federal Boulevard just south of Colfax in Denver. Buses come and go every few minutes. Dozens of people get on and off. Rhea Cortez says she's been riding RTD through the pandemic. And all of her fellow riders, they make her nervous. Um, it's been pretty annoying. There's always like a lot of people. You just have to be careful. RTD wants to add buses on busy routes like these, so riders like Cortez have more space to breathe. The agency says many passengers on these lines are essential workers and depend on transit. But RTD can't add buses without cutting something, since they already have a huge budget deficit. So they've proposed cutting routes used by white-collar commuters. I met Lynn Steckety just before sunrise at the park and ride in Evergreen. She's one of two people riding the bus, but she doesn't want RTD to cut her route. It'd be huge, not having any buses going downtown. They've already cut it probably about 50% over the last, since COVID started. So it'd be, it would be really difficult for people to get downtown. RTD has proposed cheaper alternatives like van pools in areas that would lose service. 
Judy Lubau represents Longmont. I support what a lot of the other directors have said about the messaging around this um, plan, that it be called a pandemic plan, um, so that it, no one's thinking that this could possibly be a template for future action, because it's it's an emergency situation. But as proposed, the changes wouldn't go into effect until January. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the latest episode of Purplish, our politics podcast. How the campaigns are reaching out to voters in the midst of a pandemic. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Just about five weeks until Election Day, in a year that's unlike any other in recent history. For the latest episode of our politics podcast, the Purplish team of Caitlin Kim, Andrew Kenny, and Benta Berkland explores how campaigns are trying to reach voters in these unusual times. Key to that is the ground game, knocking on doors, making phone calls, campaign events in person or virtually. And like so many things this year, the coronavirus has really upended the political ground game in Colorado. I I would say in some areas it's been radically different and then maybe some other areas, not so much. Yeah, I decided that, um, you know, after seeing over the summer that there were all these different approaches, some campaigns are on the ground, some campaigns are literally in their basement. I wanted to go out and see what it's like to go door to door. So I got linked up with the one of the campaign groups supporting the Paid Family Leave Initiative, uh, United for a New Economy. And they allowed me to tail a canvasser named uh, Quinn Mills. This is probably one of the easier jobs to have during COVID because it is outdoors. And, And, you know, to be honest, it wasn't that different. I I thought it might be a little more awkward, but Quinn was wearing... uh, the disposable mask and the kind of blue food handling gloves. A few people who are like, we are very immunocompromised in this house. I cannot enter the door right but now. But otherwise, like, you know, what they said was that it was essentially one of the best jobs you can have in the pandemic, especially if your other options, Quince 24, are, say, retail or, you know, working in a food service. Because as Quinn pointed out, you can keep your distance. So I watched as Quinn kind of gave the uh, the classic friendly knock at this one door and stood back and, and waited. And uh, sure enough, you know, people showed up at their doors and Quinn from a distance was able to safely kind of convey their message. Some people went back inside to get a mask, but it didn't seem like it was really interfering. Right. And we are seeing the parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, take different tacks, like Benta had mentioned, with the ground game, um, as, as she talked about, Democrats really have been sort of staying home and, and focusing a lot on the virtual with some small 
localized events, Republicans are are going out and about. And I think, Benta, you saw some of that firsthand as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I was in Pueblo not long ago, which is an interesting area in the state politically. It's a Democratic area that voted for President Trump very narrowly in 2016. Mm. So you have both political parties trying to make gains there or reverse how, how things turned out last cycle. Democrats specifically are trying to turn out people who don't typically vote. And so they are writing handwritten cards. So they'll give a volunteer these little postcards and the person will write it out by hand. Each person gets 50 postcards. Huh. And then whenever they have that done, they return it back to party headquarters and it gets mailed out. And they just feel like people don't get a handwritten card, and so that that will will make a difference to some degree. So those cards are being mailed to other voters? Yes. I I forget the exact term you guys probably know. It's the low frequency voter or someone who who's not guaranteed to to turn out every presidential election. Yes. So the the Team Trump bus tour was going through Pueblo. It was the the theme was promises made, promises kept, and several hundred people showed up at the Republican Party headquarters. They were had signs up and they're waving them in the street as this big red bus pulls through and some top campaign advisors on the bus came out and just held a rally and one of the headliners was John Pence, and he's actually Vice President Mike Pence's nephew. And I think we can now remind the American people that the Republican way is the American way. Why is that? What do we believe? Wow. Did that feel like another kind of turnout operation, like the main goal of that was to get people excited to go to the polls? Yes, it was definitely a turnout operation. Exactly. And to get, you know, these were people who showed up at the Republican Party headquarters in Pueblo, held up signs, were excited to see this bus drive into town. So it was really energizing those people you need to encourage their friends and family, because that's the most effective way to get people to turn out. Um, I talked to a woman in Pueblo who was going to vote against Trump because her sister, she says, hates the president. She's never voted before. This woman said she was going to do it for her sister. So I think both political parties realize the most persuasive way to get someone to vote who, who doesn't normally is someone close to them really encouraging them. That's so interesting that you mentioned the turnout angle because that's exactly what the canvasser I was following, Quinn, was trying to do. They were targeting low propensity voters who would be directly benefited by this uh, paid leave policy. And they were giving them voter pledge cards to fill out to say, I pledge I'm going to vote. So obviously they were also banking on the idea that that close contact in some way is going to get people turned out. Yeah. And I actually spoke with this woman in Durango who had never voted before. Her son actually had uh, was on the list for a lung transplant. So she realized how important it was for people to wear masks and how difficult it was to go out. And she didn't think the president was taking it seriously. And that's why, for the first time, she decided to register to vote and she was planning to vote against the president. Definitely will. Why this year? Just the president, just a lot of the issues that are going on right now. Just looking at the whole coronavirus issues that have been going on and haven't been addressed. How has that impacted your life? Oh, yeah, I have a son who needs a lung transplant. So it makes it very difficult for us to be out because we don't know. Lynn, did she, did her son have coronavirus and that's why he needed a lung transplant or he just needed the transplant? No, no okay. he just needed the transplant. He, he was ill, but it was, he's been on the list and for her family, it was such a serious issue, right? So that's why she was going to vote for the first time in her life. It was affecting her and her family personally. And that's what's sort of finally motivating her to vote. Yes. 
And talking about sort of campaign, it's not just getting out the vote. It's also, especially for further down the ballot, I think these operations are just helping people, helping voters learn more about candidates mm-hmm. um, that they might not have been paying attention to in the summer or in the primaries in the spring. And I think where you can really see a stark example of the different campaigning style, the different turnout the vote style is in um, the congressional district that Bent had mentioned. Pueblo is also CD3, which is uh, Democrat Diane Bush versus Republican uh, Lauren Boebert. And mm-hmm. You can see these two candidates taking totally different approaches. Diane Mitch Bush is staying mainly at home, uh, virtual campaigning. She says it's the responsible thing to do, you know, given the coronavirus. She doesn't want to get people sick. Mm-hmm. But Lauren Boebert is hopping from city to city in the district, from town to town, you know, sort of getting out her stump speech, get like letting people know who she is at these yeah. little rallies. And I think that's important for her, too, because she is also a a relative unknown. Both kind of weren't getting a lot of name recognition in the district when I was going through there. So I think that's that's part of what they're doing. Um, And I I will also add, I'm sure you guys will talk about this as well. But, you know, there the parties are also sort of having these umbrellas. Right. So Lauren Boebert is working through Trump victory and the state party for the get out the vote. Diane Mitch Bush with Biden and the state Democratic Party. And you're hearing these different numbers about what it means to actually get out and contact people. Like Republicans have said they have had four million contacts with people throughout the Mm -hmm. states. Democrats are saying three million meaningful contacts. (laughs) Yeah. And and it really is sort of a a numbers game in the end, right? Get out the vote will help your candidate, especially if it's a a tight race. And I did speak to one political science professor, Seth Maskett, about this. And he says it really can make a difference, but it has to be in close races. Like it can make a percentage, maybe a percent or two. So what we'll really see is the effect after November, how much the in-person contact um, did help push one candidate or maybe not. Well, Lynn, I actually think with the that third congressional district that you were mentioning, showing up may have a, a bigger impact because that district is so huge. It takes up geographically such a large part of the state from, you know, Grand Junction and the San Luis Valley, Telluride. And a lot yeah. of these places are, you know, the southwest part of Colorado and they're isolated geographically already. Yes. And so when you have someone come into that town, it, you know, you feel more included compared to some of the metro mm-hmm. areas along the front range. And I'm not saying people don't care if a candidate shows up there, but I think people are not as isolated geographically in the urban areas. Yeah, yeah you no, can make I, a splash in the local paper when Bobert shows up, for example. Exactly. And that's what other people were saying, that it does help to have that face-to-face contact, especially when the candidate is not as well-known as, say, Biden or Trump or even like a Hickenlooper or a Gardner. But now I also wanted to share, uh, I have some evidence to the kind of opposite effect. I uh, covered a little bit of this House state representative race uh, down in southern Arapahoe County, where the Democratic candidate, David Ortiz is not campaigning in person. I'm a part of that vulnerable community. I was a combat aviator in the Army, survived the catastrophic crash, which left me paralyzed from the waist down. Um, And because of that, I'm in the vulnerable unit. So it's definitely changed the way that we have been campaigning. I mean, most of our... And what he's done instead, as he explained, was shift to this very virtual approach. He's got this massive kind of phone and text operation. And when I went out in the district, I met a voter named Greg Mayers, kind of classic swing voter, and he had gotten, he said, 30 calls 
from Ortiz's campaign. Whoa. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> and what he said, it was, yeah, impressive. I would actually start to be annoyed at that point. <laughs> I mean, I know his name only because he continually calls me and I get flyers. And uh, I, again, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of his politics, but I know his name. You know, in this case, maybe Ortiz's embrace of this broadcast technology could actually kind of help him if he's spending all his resources on that instead of going door to door one at a time as his opponent is doing. But we will see. Yeah. And I I think there is also another question about whether the ground game is going to be more important this year, just given all these other competing issues to get voters' attention. An excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. It goes on to explore how the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg might influence the vote and the balance of power in Congress. You can catch the full episode at CPR.org, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, what do you do with the most traumatic event of your life? Keep it a secret, then make a movie about it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela. I host a podcast at CPR called Back From Broken. It's a show about recovery and comeback stories. On October the 8th, we're taping a special live episode, and you can join us wherever you are. We'll meet Iraq War veteran John Evans and hear the story of his military service and his amazing recovery from alcoholism and PTSD. Details at CPR.org slash homefront. Made possible in part by CU Anschutz. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A family keeps a secret in the new short film, Remembering Us. The secret is about a life-altering injury. In this scene, Steve has a question for his young daughter. Why does my injury scare you? Because you're different. Different good or different bad? Do you remember when you hurt your foot sledding? It hurt, right? Yeah. And what happened? You took me to the doctor and I got a cast. Right, and, and all your friends could sign it because they could see you were hurt. Well, I hurt my head. And even if you can't see my injury, I'm still limping. Like forgetting things or repeating things over and over. Hey, people fear what they can't see. That's why we're keeping it a secret because I don't want to scare anybody. Steve, who is an engineer, has suffered a traumatic brain injury. He's gone from solving complex problems to fogginess and grogginess. And his wife especially struggles to adapt. Remembering Us is part of this year's Breckenridge Film Festival, which runs virtually this week. And the movie is based on the real-life experiences of its filmmakers, husband and wife, Scott Takeda and Lori Allred of Denver. And welcome to you both. Thank Thank you you. so much. Uh, Scott, tell us how you suffered a traumatic brain injury. Well, I I actually slipped on hardwood floors in my own house. Uh, So it's... um, you know, that's the one thing about traumatic brain injuries is you, you don't have to be a football player. You can just be walking around house or you could be, as we uh, did in the film, uh, you know, taking your dog for a walk um, and slipping on ice. So um, it, it, ha- it ha- affects a lot of people out there, as many as one in three people. When I have fallen, it has sometimes felt like it was happening in slow motion. What went through your mind, uh, assuming you remember the fall? Um, 
You know, honestly, I don't remember the event that clearly. So I don't exactly know what was going through my mind. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a uh, Swiss cheese zone there around the actual event. Yeah, I can understand that. Laurie, I, I thought a lot about you as I watched this next scene. Hi, I'm Dr. Huddleston. I was the on-call doctor when your husband came in. What's going on? He suffered what appears to be a moderate traumatic brain injury, a concussion. A brain what? He was unconscious when the ambulance arrived. The good news is he's regained consciousness. We've been performing serial neurologic exams. He seems to be worsening a bit. We're concerned enough to do a CT scan to evaluate for a bleed. A, a bleed? It's just a precaution, and we'd like to monitor him overnight. I'm curious, Laurie, how it was to recreate as a filmmaker what is probably one of the scariest moments of your life. Uh, very difficult. <laughs> mm. And still still so, it sounds like. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that we wanted to do with this film is to tell the story both from a patient and a caregiver perspective. And so both Laurie and I are co-writers and co-directors of this film. Um, and, you know, a lot of, there's always a lot of attention around a patient, but the caregiver is the one that I think carries sometimes the heaviest emotional burden. And, um, you know, we wanted to kind of showcase that with Lori. Yeah, Lori, if you're ready um, to speak, was it cathartic at all to shoot that scene or just re-triggering? Oh, no, it was, um, I think it was really good because, like you said, we kept it a secret, and wow, what a way to reveal a secret, right? Yeah, I, I, I find the secrecy just fascinating. Will, will you tell me more about why you kept this between the two of you, why you weren't more open in the beginning about a traumatic brain injury? Uh. Well, Ryan, if you hear someone's had a traumatic brain injury, what's the first thing you think of? I think of, I, I suppose a war zone comes to mind because I associate TBI with so many of the injuries from Iraq and Afghanistan. Sure. And you probably think uh, maybe their cognitive ability is less than that they're not capable of doing a lot of things they used to be able to do. Or even that... Uh, you can't carry on a real conversation because maybe they're not totally with it. So a stigma is what Definitely. you were afraid of. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that's a very real fear. I think uh, it's proven that you should probably be concerned about that. Yeah, you know? I think you point out actually, Scott, in the film that one of the effects of TBI is a lot of unemployment, is high unemployment. Yeah. Um, and it's it's one of these, it's a, it's an invisible disability, you know. Um, Lori right now uh, is is limping and has a cane. So when people see her limping, they know, oh my gosh, you know, they they go out of the way and they help her, and they also know that she's still capable of doing her job. I mean, she's she's not a a world class sprinter. So <laughs> you know, they know that she can still direct a film. They know that she can still write. Um, with traumatic brain injuries, there is this kind of big unknown for people. So it's like, oh, I don't know. And then also you, you may not know somebody has a TBI. They may not be um, 
showing symptoms at that moment, but they still might be very um, affected. And so because of that, there's we, we fear what we can't see. Yeah, as we heard in that clip. And, and so that's why there's this stigma. And so our entire goal is to, to start the conversation um, about traumatic brain injuries because it, it does affect potentially as many as one in three people um, in our country. In the film, the a husband who has had a traumatic brain injury essentially struggles for the first year afterwards. You, you go through a full four seasons. Um, I wonder if for you, Scott, that first year after the fall was uh, something of a lost year or uh, a year you remember much at all. Can you describe it for us? I, I, I love the idea lost year, lost year. Uh, because, um, yeah, not able to do a whole heck of a lot. Uh, spent a lot of it um, completely horizontal sleeping. And um, uh, Lori carried the load. There were a lot of times I would say, remember when we did this? Or remember when your mom said, and there is no memory of that. Hmm. Yeah. What was that year like on you, Lori? Because as we heard, you really want this film, Remembering Us, to be not just about the person who fell, but about the caregiver as well. Yeah. Uh, wow. It, I think it's, uh, as a caregiver, no matter what the situation is, there, uh, gosh, it's terrible to say, but there's a bit of a burden that goes with it, and there's guilt with feeling like it's a burden. But when we've talked to uh, like a, the Brain Alliance or, you know, different organizations and talk about that, they they are actually uh, given validation that, yes, I felt that too. And that's a very normal thing to feel. And you shouldn't feel guilty for just feeling like the world is on you, but all the attention is on the, the patient. Yeah. In the film, the wife, Kate, at one point, out of frustration, says to her husband, it's like having an adult child. Yes, yes. It's like having an adult child. You're becoming a full-time job. Yeah. How, how validating it must have been, Lori Allred, to hear that it was okay to feel that way yeah. sometimes, even though you felt guilt associated with it. Yes. And... Uh, uh, you know, I, I think it is relatable for people who maybe take care of their elderly parents or grandparents uh, that sometimes things kind of reverse into their childhood. They have they need help dressing themselves or remembering to take their meds or, you know, any number of things where you really feel like you're taking care of a child that is an adult. And the same holds true when you're trying to care for someone with a brain injury. My guests are Scott Takeda and Lori Allred. The Denver couple are filmmakers, and their new short feature is called Remembering Us. It's part of the Breckenridge Film Festival, which is running virtually all this week. Uh, Scott Takeda, the last time you were on our program, it was to talk about a, an acting role. I think so much about how acting is memorizing mm -hmm. and whether you, you feared losing that. Oh, certainly. Um... You know, I think the part of my brain that I used to use to memorize um, doesn't work very efficiently these days. 
Um, so I've had to learn how to memorize differently. Oh, interesting. Uh, I actually kind of memorize visually now. Um, and as being a visual storyteller, it's something that's actually um, comes very naturally to me. So I actually see the scene as I'm reading it. Um, and strangely enough, I memorize quicker now. Ha! Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating how yeah. the neural pathways will persist. You know? There there have been some really interesting changes. Uh, I think a lot of people who have had a brain injury will find that their personality may have altered just a little bit. But in uh, we were very fortunate in that Scott's personality altered positively hmm. uh, in that now he gets my jokes. <laughs> And he has a much better sense of humor. And so we've been very blessed because I am extremely funny. And he never knew that. Yeah. 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 Who knew? Oh, I'm glad we've made room for some laughter. Listen, we, we don't have a lot of time left. And I think it's really important that we talk about another kind of hero in this story, which which is cannabis. Um, yes. Which the character Steve is reluctant to try. He has yes. a lot of preconceived notions about marijuana. Um, Scott, I, I think you were in that same boat, that, that you were wary yeah. of of cannabis. Yeah, I, I grew up in the Nancy Reagan Just Say No era. So um, I'm about as straight-laced as it gets. He signed the pledge. He doesn't even drink caffeine. Like, he is Mr. Straight-Lace. What convinced you otherwise when it came to TBI specifically? I think it was when I said, we need to figure this out. <laughs> That's interesting because Kate, uh, the the protagonist in the film basically does the same to yeah. her husband. She gives him an ultimatum. Figure yeah. this out. Yeah. Scott, is that what drove you to It, to it did, and it was kind of, um, I think it was the fact that it was uh, covered by CNN and Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you know, highlighted somebody uh, in, in, in Colorado that was uh, treating patients. Um, I happen to have known that person, so I, I, I reached out um, and uh, he's a uh, world-renowned medical doctor that does research on cannabis, and um, he thought it would be very helpful, um, and it has. It's... How has it been helpful? I just want to say there is emerging research on cannabis and TBI that mm-hmm. cannabinoids have a protective effect. But yeah. what did you, what, what did you notice is the difference in yourself, Scott? You, you know, Laurie's actually the better one. Ah. Well, so he was taking it, and I, the first day, noticed a difference, the, which I totally did not expect. I mean, we have zero experience with cannabis. So uh, when he took it, the very first day, I could tell that he was, his thinking was clearer. He was repeating himself less, hmm. uh, even stuttering less. Like, there were all these indications that there was a change. Uh, but he did not notice it. And I didn't want to influence his opinion. Or, And so a couple days later, he goes, you know, I think this might be working. I'm like, no kidding. <laughs> it is a huge change. Huge. We have just about a minute. Okay. Scott, does it feel like a weight lifted to be honest about this, to be open about what happened to you? I guess so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm certainly at a point where you can say, um, if you didn't know me incredibly well, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know that I have a TBI. Still have symptoms, uh, which the the cannabis helps. You know, we're in the process right now. Uh, we've finished writing the actual screenplay for the feature, and uh, so uh, we're going to be looking for a bigger 
place uh, to tell the story, hopefully, in people's local theaters. Yeah, Remembering Us for Now is a short film that's part of the Breckenridge Film Festival, running virtually all this week. Its creators are Scott Takeda and Laurie Allred, filmmakers from Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With special thanks to Pedro Lombrano, I'm Ryan Warner.